Section 1 of Chapter 18 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 18, Section 1. On the 19th of October, 1691, William arrived at Kensington from the Netherlands. Three days later he opened the Parliament. The aspect of affairs was, on the whole, cheering. By land there had been gains and losses, but the balance was in favour of England. Against the fall of Mons might well be offset the taking of Athlone, the victory of Ogram, the surrender of Limerick, and the pacification of Ireland. At sea there had been no great victory, but there had been a great display of power and of activity, and, though many were dissatisfied because more had not been done, none could deny that there had been a change for the better. The ruin caused by the foibles and vices of Torrington had been repaired. The fleet had been well equipped, the rations had been abundant and wholesome, and the health of the crews had consequently been, for that age, wonderfully good. Russell, who commanded the naval forces of the Allies, had in vain offered battle to the French. The white flag which, in the preceding year, had ranged the channel unresisted from Land's End to the Straits of Dover, now, as soon as our topmasts were descried twenty leagues off, abandoned the open seas and retired into the depths of the harbour of Brest. The appearance of an English squadron in the estuary of the Shannon had decided the fate of the last fortress which had held out for King James, and a fleet of merchantmen from the Levant valued at four million sterling had through dangers which had caused many sleepless nights to the underwriters of lombard street been convoyed safe into the thames the lords and commons listened with signs of satisfaction to a speech in which the king congratulated them on the event of the war in ireland and expressed his confidence that they would continue to support him in the war with france he told them that a great naval armament would be necessary and that, in his opinion, the conflict by land could not be effectually maintained with less than 65,000 men. He was thanked in affectionate terms. The force which he asked was voted, and large supplies were granted with little difficulty. But when the ways and means were taken into consideration, symptoms of discontent began to appear. Eighteen months before, when the Commons had been employed in settling the civil list, Many members had shown a very natural disposition to complain of the amount of salaries and fees received by official men. Keen speeches had been made, and what was much less usual had been printed. There had been much excitement out of doors, but nothing had been done. The subject was now revived. A report made by the commissioners who had been appointed in the preceding year to examine the public's accounts disclosed some facts which excited indignation and others which raised grave suspicion. The House seemed fully determined to make an extensive reform, and, in truth, nothing could have averted such a reform except the folly and the violence of the reformers. That they should have been angry is indeed not strange. The enormous gains direct and indirect, of the servants of the public went on increasing, while the gains of everybody else were diminishing. Rents were falling, trade was languishing. Every man who lived either on what his ancestors had left him or on the fruits of his own industry was forced to retrench. The placement alone throve amidst the general distress. Look, cried the incensed squires, at the comptroller of the customs. 
Ten years ago he walked and we rode. Our incomes have been curtailed. His salary has been doubled. We have sold our horses, and he has bought them. And now we go on foot, and are splashed by his coach and six. Lothar vainly endeavored to stand up against the storm. He was heard with little favor by the country gentlemen who had not long before looked upon him as one of their leaders. He had left them. He had become a courtier. He had two good places, one in the treasury and the other in the household. He had recently received from the king's own hand a gratuity of two thousand guineas. It seemed perfectly natural that he should defend abuses by which he profited. The taunts and reproaches with which he was assailed were insupportable to his sensitive nature. He lost his head, almost fainted away on the floor of the house, and talked about writing himself in another place. Unfortunately, no member rose at this conjuncture to propose that the civil establishment of the kingdom should be carefully revised, that sinecure should be abolished, that exorbitant official income should be reduced, and that no servant of the state should be allowed to exact, under any pretense, anything beyond his known and lawful remuneration. In this way, it would have been possible to diminish the public burdens and at the same time to increase the efficiency of every public department. But unfortunately, those who were loudest in clamoring against the prevailing abuses were utterly destitute of the qualities necessary for the work of reform. On the 12th of December, some foolish man, whose name has not come down to us, moved that no person employed in any civil office, the speaker, judges, and ambassadors accepted, should receive more than 500 pounds a year, and this motion was not only carried, but carried without one dissentient voice. Those who were most interested in opposing it doubtless saw that opposition would, at the moment, only irritate the majority, and reserve themselves for a more favorable time. The more favorable time soon came. No man of common sense could, when his blood had cooled, remember without shame that he had voted for a resolution which made no distinction between sinecurists and laborious public servants between clerks employed in copying letters and ministers on whose wisdom and integrity the fate of the nation might depend. The salary of the doorkeeper of the excise office had been, by a scandalous job, raised to five hundred a year. It ought to have been reduced to fifty. On the other hand, the services of a secretary of state, who was well qualified for his post, would have been cheap at five thousand. If the resolution of the Commons had been carried into effect, both the salary which ought not to have exceeded fifty pounds and the salary which might, without impropriety, have amounted to five thousand, would have been fixed at five hundred. Such absurdity must have shocked even the roughest and plainest fox-hunter in the house. A reaction took place, and when, after an interval of a few weeks, it was proposed to insert in a bill of supply a clause in conformity with the resolution of the 12th of December. The noes were loud, the speaker was of the opinion that they had had it, the eyes did not venture to dispute his opinion. The senseless plan which had been approved without a division was rejected without a division. The subject was not again mentioned. Thus a grievance so scandalous that none of those who profited by it dared to defend it was perpetuated merely by the imbecility and intemperance of those who attacked it. Early in the session, the Treaty of Limerick became the subject of a grave and earnest discussion. 
the commons in the exercise of that supreme power which the english legislature possessed over all the dependencies of england sent up to the lords a bill providing that no person should sit in the irish parliament should hold an irish office civil military or ecclesiastical or should practice law or medicine in ireland till he had taken the oaths of allegiance and supremacy and had subscribed the declaration against transubstantiation the lords were not more inclined than the commons to favor the irish no peer was disposed to entrust roman catholics with political power nay it seems that no peer objected to the principle of the absurd and cruel rule which excluded roman catholics from the liberal professions but it was thought that this rule though unobjectionable in principle would if adopted without some exceptions be a breach of a positive compact their lordships called for the treaty of limerick ordered it to be read at the table and proceeded to consider whether the law framed by the lower house was consistent with the engagements into which the government had entered one discrepancy was noticed it was stipulated by the second civil article that every person actually residing in any fortress occupied by an irish garrison should be permitted on taking the oath of allegiance to resume any calling which he had exercised before the revolution it would beyond all doubt have been a violation of this covenant to require that a lawyer or a physician who had been within the walls of limerick during the siege should take the oath of supremacy and subscribe the declaration against transubstantiation before he could receive fees holt was consulted and was directed to prepare clauses in conformity with the terms of the capitulation the bill as amended by holt was sent back to the commons they at first rejected the amendment and demanded a conference the conference was granted rochester in the painted chamber delivered to the managers of the lower house a copy of the treaty of limerick and earnestly represented the importance of preserving the public faith inviolate this appeal was one which no honest man though inflamed by national and religious animosity could resist the commons reconsidered the subject and after hearing the treaty read agreed with some slight modifications to the, what the lords had proposed the bill became a law it attracted at the time little notice but was after the lapse of several generations the subject of a very acrimonious controversy many of us can well remember how strongly the public mind was stirred in the days of george the third and george the fourth by the question whether roman catholics should be permitted to sit in parliament it may be doubted whether any dispute has produced stranger perversions of history the whole past was falsified for the sake of the present all the great events of three centuries long appeared to us distorted and discolored by a mist sprung from our own theories and our own passions some friends of religious liberty not content with the advantage which they possessed in the fair conflict of reason with reason weakened their case by maintaining that the law which excluded irish roman catholics from parliament was inconsistent with the civil treaty of limerick the first article of that treaty it was said guaranteed to the irish roman catholic such privileges in the exercise of his religion as he had enjoyed at the time of charles the second in the time of charles the second no test excluded roman catholics from the irish parliament 
Such a test could not, therefore, it was argued, be imposed without a breach of public faith. In the year 1828, especially, this argument was put forward in the House of Commons as if it had been the main strength of a cause which stood in need of no such support. The champions of Protestant ascendancy were well pleased to see the debate diverted from a political question about which they were in the wrong to a historical question about which they were in the right. They had no difficulty in proving that the first article, as understood by all contracting parties, meant only that the Roman Catholic worship should be tolerated as in times past. That article was drawn up by Ginkel, and just before he drew it up, he had declared that he would rather try the chances of arms than consent that Irish papists should be capable of holding civil and military offices, of exercising liberal professions, and of becoming members of municipal corporations. How is it possible to believe that he would, of his own accord, have promised that the House of Lords and the House of Commons should be open to men to whom he would not open a guild of Skinners or a guild of Cordwainers? How, again, is it possible to believe that the English peers would, while professing the most punctilious respect for public faith, while lecturing the commons on the duty of observing public faith, while taking counsel with the most learned and upright jurist of the age as to the best mode of maintaining public faith, have committed a flagrant violation of public faith, and that not a single lord would have been so honest or so factitious as to protest against an act of monstrous perfidy aggravated by hypocrisy. Or, if we could believe this, how can we believe that no voice would have been raised in any part of the world against such wickedness, that the court of Saint-Germain and the court of Versailles would have remained profoundly silent, that no Irish exile, no English malcontent, would have uttered a murmur, that not a word of invective or sarcasm on so inviting a subject would have been found in the whole compass of the Jacobite literature, and that it would have been reserved for politicians of the 19th century to discover that a treaty made in the 17th century had, a few weeks after it had been signed, been outrageously violated in the sight of all Europe. On the same day on which the Commons read for the first time the bill which subjected Ireland to the absolute dominion of the Protestant minority, they took into consideration another matter of high importance. Throughout the country, but especially in the capital, in the seaports and in the manufacturing towns, the minds of men were greatly excited on the subject of trade with the East Indies. A fierce paper war had been during some time been raging and several grave questions, both constitutional and commercial, had been raised which the legislature only could decide. It had often been repeated, and ought never to be forgotten, that our polity differs widely from those politics which have, during the last eighty years, been methodically constructed, digested into articles, and ratified by constituent assemblies. It grew up in a rude age, it is not to be found entire in any formal instrument. All along the line which separates the functions of the prince from those of the legislator, there was long a disputed territory. Encroachments were perpetually committed, and, if not very outrageous, were often tolerated. Trespass, merely as trespass, was commonly suffered to pass unresented. It was only when the trespass produced some positive damage 
that the aggrieved party stood on his right, and demanded that the frontier should be set out by meets and bounds, and that the landmark should thenceforth be punctiliously respected. Many of those points which had occasioned the most violent disputes between our sovereigns and their parliaments had been finally decided by the Bill of Rights. But one question, scarcely less important than any of the questions which had been set at rest forever, was still undetermined. Indeed, that question was never, as far as can now be ascertained, even mentioned in the Convention. The king had undoubtedly, by the ancient laws of the realm, large powers for the regulation of trade, but the ablest judge would have found it difficult to say what was the precise extent of those powers. It was universally acknowledged that it belonged to the king to prescribe weights and measures, and to coin money, that no fair or market could be held without authority from him, that no ship could unload in any bay or estuary which he had not declared to be a port. In addition to his undoubted right to grant special commercial privileges to particular places, he long claimed a right to grant special commercial privileges to particular societies and to particular individuals. And our ancestors, as usual, did not think it worth their while to dispute this claim till it produced serious inconvenience. At length, in the reign of Elizabeth, the power of creating monopolies began to be grossly abused, and as soon as it began to be grossly abused, it began to be questioned. The Queen wisely declined a conflict with a House of Commons backed by the whole nation. She frankly acknowledged that there was reason for complaint. She cancelled the patents which had excited the public clamors, and her people, delighted by this concession and by the gracious manner in which it had been made, did not require from her an express renunciation of the disputed prerogative. The discontents which her wisdom had appeased were revived by the dishonest and pusillanimous policy which her successor called Kingcraft. He readily granted oppressive patents of monopoly. When he needed the help of his Parliament, he readily annulled them. As soon as the Parliaments had ceased to sit, his great seal was put to instruments more odious than those which he had recently cancelled. At length that excellent House of Commons, which met in 1623, determined to apply a strong remedy to the evil. The king was forced to assent to a law which declared monopolies established by royal authority to be null and void. Some exceptions, however, were made and, unfortunately, were not very clearly defined. It was especially provided that every society of merchants, which had been instituted for the purpose of carrying on any trade, should retain all of its legal privileges. The question whether a monopoly granted by the Crown to such a company were or were not a legal privilege was left unsettled, and continued to exercise during many years the ingenuity of lawyers. The nation, however, relieved at once from a multitude of impositions and vexations, which were painfully felt every day at every fireside, was in no humor to dispute the validity of the charters under which a few companies to London traded with distant parts of the world. Of these companies, by far the most important was that which had been, on the last day of the sixteenth century, incorporated by Queen Elizabeth under the name of the Governor and Company of Merchants of London trading to the East Indies. When this celebrated body began to exist, the Mughal monarchy was at the zenith of its power and glory. 
Akbar, the ablest and best of the princes of the house of Tamerlane, had just been born, full of years and honors, to a mausoleum surpassing in magnificence any that Europe could show. He had bequeathed to his posterity an empire containing more than twenty times the population and yielding more than twenty times the revenue of the England which, under our great queen, held a foremost place among European powers. It is curious and interesting to consider how little the two countries, destined to be one day so closely connected, were then known to each other. The most enlightened Englishmen looked on India with ignorant admiration. The most enlightened natives of India were scarcely aware that England existed. Our ancestors had a dim notion of endless bazaars, swarming with buyers and sellers, and blazing with cloth of gold, with variegated silks and with precious stones, of treasuries where diamonds were piled in heaps and sequins in mountains, of palaces compared with which Whitehall and Hampton Court were hovels, of armies ten times as numerous as that which they had seen assembled at Tilbury to repel the Armada. On the other hand, it was probably not known to one of the statesmen of the Durbar of Agra that there was near the setting sun a great city of infidels called London, where a woman reigned, and that she had given to an association of frank merchants the exclusive privilege of freighting ships from her dominions to the Indian seas that this association would one day rule all India, from the ocean to the everlasting snow, would reduce to profound obedience great provinces which had never submitted to Akbar's authority, would send lieutenant governors to preside in his capital, and would dole out a monthly pension to his heir, would have seemed to the wisest of European or of Oriental politicians as impossible as the inhabitants of our globe should find an empire in Venus or Jupiter. End of section 1. Recording by Richard Carpenter in Seattle, Washington.